Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Do yourself a do, go ahead and do me a favor. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to First Samuel. Am I too loud? Yeah. I feel like I could feel it. I can hear myself too well. It's like, man, this is going to be tough on me and the people. First Samuel chapter ten. I'll be picking up where Brother Sean left off a couple weeks ago. And we'll be picking up in verse 10. And it'll be uh, ending in 13 today, just a few verses. But I think, obviously, as you all know already, that in one verse, one word uh, from God's word, you could go on for eternity, right? It's just, there's so much there. Reading from 1 Samuel chapter 10, starting in verse 10. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, talking about Saul. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formally saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we thank you for the blessed opportunity to get into the word of God and Lord, to be able to have the great privilege to be able to proclaim and declare the word of God. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and I don't take it lightly. Um, Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the people of God. I thank you for 116, Lord, our, our church, uh, Lord, that God, that you would allow them to hear your word and not my own today, that they wouldn't be um, that my speaking would interfere with what it is that you would have to say to all of us today. So Lord, I just commit it into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Samuel had prophesied these very things to Saul in the previous verses saying, in uh, chapter 10, verse 7, he said, and let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. So looking at verse 10, which brings us now up to verse 10, and that is where we we are starting today, it says that when they came to the hill, and the hill here is more accurately rendered uh, to Gibeah, and this was actually the home of Saul, the estate of the house of Kish, which lay evidently in the immediate vicinity of Gibeah. There was a group of prophets that had came out to meet him just as Samuel had prophesied. 
And these would be none other than what we read in uh, history here of Samuel. And these were Samuel's notorious school of prophets. Samuel is named as both as being the founder of the school of prophets and so the representative of the goodly fellowship and, and as having uttered one of the earliest of what we regarded as distinctly the messianic predictions. Uh, the schools founded by Samuel already held a high place in the estimation of the Israelites. So this idea of the school of prophets wasn't just, oh, wow, you know, suddenly here they come upon Saul and it's something brand new. No one understands what's going on. They all recognized in that this school of prophets had already gained an estimation among the people of Israel. And this is why they um, spoke this way when they saw Saul behaving in such a manner. In Acts 3.24, it says, Yea, and all the prophets, now this is important to, to understand, all the prophets from Samuel, showing that Samuel was obviously indeed um, the prophet that was recognized as the prophet. Uh, and those that follow after, as many of us have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So what would that mean of Saul then? Because he's coming behind Samuel and now we see him in the midst of the school of prophets. Here he is prophesying, okay? I mean, obviously this is ordered of the Lord, it's ordained of God, and this is one of the many marks uh, that were to confirm his kingship. It said in the spirit of God came upon him. Okay, and he prophesied among them. John Gill, in his heavily studied of the Jewish cultures, many of you know, if you read John Gill's commentary, he really understands Judaism very well and just how uh, the Jews' religion and how they functioned and how they thought. He says this the Jews say, and he was quoting from the uh, histories of Josephus. Uh, saying basically the Jews that had been out there that day. Now, this still could be speculation because we don't know if all of the histories of Josephus are completely accurate. But this is what John Gill says. He said that the Jews say he prophesied. When, when Saul began to prophesy, right, he wasn't just prophesying other people's home addresses and, and, and doing you know things that were trying to somehow um, inflame them uh, in a way that would just satisfy some kind of sinful ambition. But he was, what was he prophesying about? Himself? No, he's what prophesied that, that he said he was prophesying was, according to the Jews, that he prophesied of the world to come, Gog and Magog, and of the rewards of the righteous and of the punishment of the wicked. And this seems, you know, obviously this may or may not be true, but this would seem in line with the scripture that he wasn't just out rattling off some crazy things, especially if we know that it was God that uh, authenticated this, this, this move of the spirit. It said the spirit of God, not a false spirit or deceptive spirit or a lying spirit, but it was the spirit of the Lord that came upon him. So it was God that moved him and it was God that caused him to prophesy. So whatever he prophesied would have been in alignment with what God had put upon him. Samuel had confirmed Saul's calling with these four signs that we read in uh, 
chapter 10, verse 2, the messages, obviously, of the two men. And then in uh, verses 3 and 4, the meal of the three men. And then the music of some of prophets in 10, 5. And then the ministry of the Spirit, which we see in verse 6. And this would signify that God was most certainly with Saul despite Israel's rejection of God for a king. I see, one, one of the things I think that people fail to realize when the reading of the word of this particular incident or event in the scriptures is that we have to understand, we must come to this reality in our theology that God is sovereign. And whatever God does, he does it for his own glory and for the purposes of his people and the people obviously around that ultimately will become part of his people. But we have to understand as well that in Psalms 24, verse 1, it says, the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. The world and, it goes on to say, those who dwell therein. This is saying that God literally owns everything. And God dictates everything. He's ordained everything that comes to pass. It isn't like man can foil the sovereign, providential hand of Almighty God. We look at this situation, and as we've read before, as we're going through this, uh, this book in 1 Samuel, we see a lot of messed up people and a lot of messed up things going on. But we see God's hand in it all. Why is this in Scripture? Because it shows us as well, as messed up as we are, and how things can seem completely contrary to God's plan in our own estimation. But in the end of the day, God is not foiled. God is not manipulated out of the equation of our lives. God is still in full control of every jot and tittle of the Christian's life and the world around us. Just because they don't they're not Christians, the world's still owned by God. He just says here in Psalms 21 that God, he owns the world and even all those that dwell, not just the believers. God owns every single person on this planet and he dictates everything that comes to pass. We're owned in creation, remember this, we're owned creatively and then we're twice owned redemptively. God owns his creation. Whether they repent or not, he owns them. They're not outside of his power. And it's for God to dictate and utilize for his own glory. We look at Psalm 115, verse 3, our famous verse is reform people. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases, not what we please. He does what pleases him. And Psalm 2 says that God laughs at men when they think they can somehow overthrow his plans. People think they can, you know, they can foil what God is doing. And he literally, it says that God laughs from heaven when men think that somehow they can overcome God's anointed. That they can overcome what God has set in motion. God sits in heavens and he laughs at them. I mean, this gives you any indication of how God views this world. He loves his people. He, he's over his people. He preserves his people. 
Um, he's predestined his people. He, he has everything in line. And when, when, when the unregenerate mock God, they think they can stop the gospel and they can thwart God's plans, they're absolutely totally deceived because it is God who tells them what to do. It is God that commands all men everywhere to repent, regardless whether they repent or not. The command still stands. God is still in control. King David also experienced the Spirit's power that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 14. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord, once again, used the same words, um, came upon David. Some translations say it come on, it came upon David greatly from that day forward. We see this reality of God's God's power, God's spirit. Um, coming upon people for specific reasons, uh, for certain missions that God has called them to carry out that it cannot be carried out in the flesh. Um, fast forward it to the New Testament at the inception of the church. We read in Acts 1.8 where Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see God, he's he's giving his people the enablement and the power to do what he has called them to do. What he's ordained them to do. He commands them to do. God is not going to command you to do something without giving you the ability to be able to accomplish it. Because nothing we can do on our own means anything. We can do nothing, the Bible says, without Christ. Anything profitable, that is. Anything that's going to obviously be something that's not going to burn up on that day as wood, and hay, uh, wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be those things that carry on forward into eternity. The calling of God upon those who will be leaders of his people uh, must be taken extremely seriously as we read in the life of Saul, in the life of those who are called... Uh, uh, into the family of God. Um, if not, listen. If not, if you take what what if you take your leadership uh, leadership uh, lightly in what God has called you to do, and I'm not saying as a Christian, but I'm talking about if you are in any kind of leadership, um, regardless of what capacity, if you take it lightly, you're you're um, you'll be shepherds like Saul. You know, you'll jump in it, in it, in it just for you know the vanity of it all. I'm not saying Saul jumped into it because he was being vain. I'm just saying Saul represents vanity, and our ministries will represent vanity as well, and they'll end shipwrecked, destroyed if we um, do not take our leadership seriously in what God's called us to do. Even so much as empowering us with His Spirit, and then later, you know, just. Um, destroy everything God has done if you treat the ministry or leadership that God has given you as a light thing, you will end up, I'm not saying you're going to end up, you know, being pierced through by a, a sword by your own hand. My point is that your ministry, though, will take on that aspect of a ministry of death because it'll be of the flesh. In verse 11, it says, and it happened with all who knew him formally 
saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? Here it's, it, it, it seems to indicate that all who knew Saul formally, his, his past life, we could use that analogy considering what had taken place, they had known, known of his former life. And, and then now they're seeing a total transformation. He's sort of out of character. You see, what in the world is this, this Saul? We all know Saul, right? And now he's flopping around you know, out in the field with the school of prophets and he's prophesying. I mean, what is going on here? Just something totally like just out of the ordinary. Like, you know, it's like you see somebody one way, like let's, for an example, your own life. Imagine what, I mean, what idiots we were before we were converted. I mean, think about that for one minute. People know my former life. And a lot of times that can be a hindrance to them even hearing what I have to say. Like we know, oh, oh, now you're the nice guy and you want to do nice to everybody. Oh, yeah, we all know you, Jeff. We ran around with you when you're in your 20s, right? You're anything but that person you say you are now. That was my former life. But I've been so changed. They were to come and get to know me now. Hopefully, by God's grace, they would see a, a, a huge difference. And they would wonder, you know, what in the world has happened to Jeff? You know, what is going on? With him, uh, you know, they they recognized the change in Saul and spoke to one another, saying, "What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets?" You know, this this is something that they would have recognized not only in um, the reality of of the the school of prophets because they've been recognized. They've you know they had credibility of who they were. Who, they were accomplished. They were they were followers of, of Samuel, and now you got Saul out there, um, hooping and hollering on the hillside, and they're like, "What is going on? Is he among the prophets?" Right? And also, they knew Samuel. He's very recognized. Samuel was very recognized, even as a judge here. And now you've got um, Saul in the likes of this um, clan, and it really probably threw people for a whirl. And I think it should throw people for a whirl. When we're transformed, I think that when we do, God does grant us, the Bible says, another heart. Um, I think it should, when the spirit does come upon us, I think there should be, and I'm not saying just periods, right? I know God grants us um, spiritual enablement for whatever it is that we contend against. God's going to give me more spiritual enablement to be burned on a stake than he would for me washing the dishes in our house. Do you know what I mean? There's going to be this, 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 this enablement and God's going to add muscularity to our lives when it comes to a missionary context. I go out and preach on the streets or I go to another country. I'm going to depend on God for more strength than he would give me in the home just to sweep the floor. Do you know what I mean? There are certain aspects where God does give us extra strength. And, but there should be this reality from the Christian life from going from completely dead in our sin acting like a total scoundrel, you know, and the next thing you know, you are wanting to live upright, do be godly. And, and these should be so transformational that people should recognize, boy, I just ran into Jerry the other day. I haven't seen him in 30 years. He's not the same guy. You know, I rattled off one of my old jokes and he didn't laugh. 
You know what I mean? It's like people recognize that there's a change and that's the way it should be. If you're born again and the spirit of God has truly come upon you, you can't be the same person you were five years ago or three years ago. There has to be a change and a transformation reality to our conversion. You know, this is all all who knew him formally. You know, this would be in the past. I mean, look at even the Apostle Paul's conversion. This isn't foreign to Scripture. Acts um, chapter 9, verse 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, And then it jumps to verse 3. Uh, as we jump to verse three, it says, and he journeyed and he came near Damascus and suddenly there shone, uh, shined round about him a light from heaven. And the Bible says in verse four, he fell to the earth. Boom, right? It doesn't sound like he made a decision for Christ. It doesn't sound like this was an act for his free will. It sounded like God came upon him, Right? and knocked him off his high horse onto the ground. I mean, just imagine that. That's your experience of coming to Christ. Could you imagine that? But that should be all of our experiences. You know, we're all up on our high horse of pride. We, 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 we act like we're good people. We're not. We're hypocrites. And then the Lord comes suddenly upon us, came suddenly upon Saul, gave him a new heart. I know, obviously, this can be read in different ways. It may not even be considered the born-again experience, but this can be taken as a parallel verse to when the Spirit of God comes upon the believer, transforms him. God takes out your old heart, right? Gives you a new heart of flesh, rewrites his laws upon your heart, puts his spirit in you. You're no longer a slave to every addiction and every sin. You're now a willing slave, bond servant to the king and master, Jesus Christ. And this is what baptism represents, that you go down under the old master and you come up out of the water under a new master. You've died to the old master and now you've come up you know, you're, you're raised, you were planted in the death of Christ, right? Into the grave. You died with Christ, you know, and then you're risen to the newness of life. And this is what it means to be a true believer. It said, after the scales were removed from Paul's eyes and he was baptized, the Bible says in verse 20 of chapter 9, says he immediately, what was his reaction? What was his reaction? he immediately, the Bible says, began to preach. So it's inevitable. You're born again. I'm not saying you're going to be out preaching or behind the pulpit around the street corner, but the inevitable marks of a believer is that they talk about Christ. They declare Christ to other people. Why? First, for the glory of Christ. That's our motivation is to honor God with anybody gets converted. But if you've truly been converted and changed, you can't help but speak, the Bible says. You can't stop it. You're going to tell other people, other human beings, what's happened to you. Like God saved a complete, absolute crisis and it's given me a brand new life. And you're going to, if it's really happened to you, you're going to tell other people about it. You're not just going to keep it to yourself and wander around aimlessly. You're going to have direction. And that's going to be one direction is that you're going to begin to preach. 21, it says, the use of the word again is it used with Saul when they all 
all those who saw him were marveled at what was going on. It says here, dealing with Apostle Paul, in verse 21 of chapter 9, it says, but all that heard him were amazed. Same thing. And said, is not this he that destroyed them? And called upon the name, all those that were calling upon the name of Christ, that this guy was the guy that would was the one that was coming in and literally um, with threatenings and used the word slaughter God's people. You know, and isn't this the guy? And now he's preaching to us. What audacity? You're going to walk in here and you have the audacity as a Jew. And you're going to come in here and tell me what to do and what's right. You're going to argue with me. We know you're out murdering the saints. You're going to walk in here with bloodstained hands and you're going to tell us about this faith that you're now changed to. Get out of here. But then it's sealed in verse 23. It says, after many days that were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. That's a good sign. That's a great sign you're in the right place. Because if they want to pat him on the back and say, thank you for that great message, Paul. We can all get along. We can all agree. We're going to compromise and come in with some interfaith deal where everybody just has to get along. He didn't do that. He came in and he began to confront them to such a point to where they got it. This guy's gone. He's off with these nuts that follow this supposed Christ, right? Now he's no longer our buddy. We're going to, just, we're going to kill this guy. And we're going to plot how we're going to do it. And that's always a good sign that you're in the right place with your faith. If you never have any persecution in your life, ever, and no rejection, no people con- confronting you about your faith, you're probably not in the faith. Because the Bible says from the very beginning, those who are elect of God are at enmity with Satan. You can't remove enmity. If you get no enmity, you're in the world. You love the world, you behave like the world. Because there's no enmity with the world. The world loves, the, Jesus said the world loves its own, right? They're, they're going to pamper you. They love you. But you're, when you act like that, you're of the world. But those, the Jesus said, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. You'll be hated because they hate me. And if you're following me, you will um, identify with me and you'll imitate me. Therefore, you're going to get persecuted too and they'll hate you too. And if they don't, you are on the wrong side. Jesus said, Who, who's ever not gathering is what? Scattering. So it would be a good thing to say this morning, are you, are you more into the scattering phase or in the gathering phase with your relationship to God? In 926, the book of Acts, it says, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. So there's already this fear that people are, you know, similar with Saul. Like, what is going on? What I'm trying to point out here is that there's such a radical change when God truly comes upon a human being. There's such a radically, there's a a radical, obviously, point in someone's life where they become so other that this points to one other, and that's God alone. Paul even said to himself concerning his former life in Galatians 1.13. He says, For you have heard of my former life, former, in life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's room and called me through his grace. And Paul is talking about his past deception now um, in light of the false gospel uh, that's being preached in the church of Galatia as an example. What he's saying here, listen, my former life, I was a murderer. I was a persecutor of the church, but I thought I was doing God's bidding in God's business. But when God is pleased to show me the truth, he separated me from the womb. He had plans for me. He ordained this to come to pass, and he made me into a new person. And this is contrary to what you're being told in the book of Galatians. This is why he's confronting the church because they're preaching a message that wasn't the same message that was revealed to him from Christ and that so radically transformed him from the former life to his present life of being a follower of Christ. He was born again. And he was saying, the message is not the message that I heard. And then he goes on to say, he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, because there's no other gospel, there's only one, but there are some of you who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of grace. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Because he's saying, if the, if the wrong gospel is preached, there's going to be no former life to the new life. You're going to remain in the former life and go straight to hell. You're not, there's going to be no former life for you. It's going to be a false life built upon a false foundation because you've been preached a false gospel and a false gospel is giving you a false Christ, which ultimately at the end of the day is giving you a false God that doesn't save. Leaves you right in the condition that you are and then you believe I'm a Christian. Like a majority of what's being peddled in our day. It's this false gospel that gets everybody believing that they're okay. Go out to Texas and preach. Go on the streets. Everybody's saved. Everybody's saved. They're not really saved, but they all think they're saved. I heard that before. You know, and they all think that they're saved because the majority, Texas is full of churches. Full of churches. You don't like this one? Go across the street. There's 10 others. You know, we can shop till we drop when it comes to churches. And many people do. They can't stick with the church. They can't become members of churches. They just always want to leave an exit strategy because they can't fully submit to the local church. And the reality is, is that Paul is saying a lot of these places, you're not getting the truth. And Galatia was one of them, and he dealt with them. You're going to be damned for what you're preaching. This isn't the gospel. This doesn't save. This doesn't change. This doesn't transform anybody's life. There'll be no, there'll be no change. They'll be in their former condition forever. Paul would not even say that even if I were to try to please men, I wouldn't even be of Christ. I wouldn't even be a, a preacher of the Lord. I would be false and fake and lost. This is how important the gospel is because at the end of the day, it all dictates dict dictates around who God is, even Saul's condition with him being changed. You can all say Paul was a complete rascal, but it doesn't matter. 
God was in his life. God did that for his own glory. And he prophesied, and he was prophesying, and the people around him that knew him knew right away that this guy was not this guy. And something radically has taken place. The idea here is that those who have been converted will not, you know, will escape and will not accept lies that are being peddled out there, but will believe and trust the truth. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? An old creature? He's a new creature. Old things, old life, former life have passed away. Behold, all things become new. God changed Saul's heart. And God changed, you know, Paul's heart. I mean, 1 Samuel 10, 9, it says, And Saul turned to leave. Samuel and God changed Saul's heart and all the signs came to pass that day. And God changed Paul's heart and God changes our hearts. It's not we who change my heart. I can't change my own heart. Uh, It only can be effectively changed by God. Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you And not only did I choose you, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. Ephesians 1.4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. We didn't choose ourselves. God chose us before the foundation of the world, before you even in existence or even alive, God already had chose his elect that already been formed, those that already been chosen in Christ and were to die inevitably in his death. Everybody who dies, you die covenantally with a covenant that was made with the Son and the Father that within the covenant of the elect, when Christ died, all of those in the covenant died with him. And all those who are his will come to faith. Will come to faith. We don't know. We're not the ones that can dictate whether someone's heart can be changed or not changed. We preach the message that our king's commanders to preach, and he changes the hearts according to his secret decree in his own will. And Peter, First uh, Peter, uh, chapter two, verses nine says, "But you are a chosen generation. Not you've chosen your generation. You are a chosen." generation, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvel light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. See the difference here? He's going back and forth telling you, never this, but you're this, all because of what God has done solely by his own choice and his own election. First um, Timothy 1.19, Paul even warned Timothy. He said this, Timothy, my child, and here's the warning that always follows these uh, situations when he's dealing with this reality of, of, of having a changed heart, God moving upon you, will that remain? 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul warned Timothy, he said, Timothy, my child, I entrust you with this command in keeping with the previous prophecies about you. Just like with Saul, there was previous prophecies about him so that by them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience 
which some have rejected, or another translation says, or put away, and thereby shipwrecked their faith. You know, there's a couple different views of this shipwrecking your faith, by the way, that are out there. And I think there's truth to actually both of them. John Gill says in this portion, he says, which some have putting away, that is a good conscience, which does not suppose that they once had one. Since that may be put away, which was never had. He's saying this is really dealing with people that had a faith, an outward show of religion, but were never truly born again. And therefore, it's inevitable that their faith will be shipwrecked. Um, I agree with this, but I also have witnessed those who have fallen and shipwrecked their faith, uh, but have made a mock, at least made a mockery of their faith, but later repented and rescued that which God had been building with them all along. I've seen people shipwreck their faith that were converted. Yeah, I've seen people that destroy things or they get something happens. I mean, I don't even know what, what the cause of it is. Let's say it's not even your fault, but there's something there where your, your faith is shipwrecked. Maybe by, I mean, God forbid, you get caught in an adulterous affair or you do something totally contrary to our faith that's really blaspheming God among the Gentiles. It's very destructive in nature. But let's say that all happens. It doesn't mean you're lost or you're no good and it's too late for you. You can end up in hell no matter what happens. That person repents because they're truly of the faith. God restores them, maybe not back to ministry, but he restores them and they repent of their sin. They're delivered from their sin. They're healed from whatever those things that were plaguing them. And they come in to where they're serving Christ. And sometimes where Christ welds us, we're even stronger in those areas. So, but their ship, their, 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 what they profess has been destroyed for most people because of the sin itself just annihilate anybody's trust in the guy. So his, his, his ministry is destroyed over his sin, but it doesn't mean he's destroyed. So the point is, is that there are two opposing factors here. Just because someone shipwrecks or destroys their ministry doesn't always mean they're not born again. I see a lot of born again people blow it, right? But it doesn't mean that they ever lose their salvation, Okay, because that's not even in script. Losing your salvation. If you can't gain your salvation, you can't lose your salvation. The Lord orders that. He enables that. He keeps us, right? But the Bible says we have a sinful nature. We're not sinless. We're not perfect. We're being perfected in the day we're glorified. But the reality is, is that, you know, there's nobody. You talk to some of these nuts out there. They'll say that, hey, listen, you know, I haven't sinned in 40 years. I was like, Do you, are you married? Let me go talk to your wife. You know, it'll give me that. You just sinned. It was your first sin after 40 years that you just ruined it. I've had people say that. And they're usually under this false illusion or deception of what's called Pelagian doctrine where they believe that man is born upright and that we have the ability not to sin. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It's like we, we, say we, could, we say that we don't have sin. We're liars. And the truth of God's not even in us. I mean, the reality, it's such a ridiculous view. How could anyone believe that they could even get through one? I'm not talking about falling headlong into sin, but I'm talking about how can we ever believe for one moment that we're not in some way sinning at some level before God? I mean, we have a sinful nature. Are you worshiping God? Uh, 
all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, 24-7? It's a command. It's a law. So if you violate that law, you're in sin. So you do that while you're sleeping? You know, I try to ask these Pelagian guys, oh, so you're, you're saying that you're loving the Lord God with all your heart continuously, 24-7, even when you're sleeping? You know what I mean? Every second of the day, you're not. There's no way. So you failed. So in Acts 13.46, it says, And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God would be spoken to you first. But since you reject and judge for yourselves unworthy of the everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And this is obviously where, where Gil's coming from. First, uh, second, Second uh, Timothy chapter four seven says, Paul. This is how Paul ended his life, and then we see how Saul ended his life. The apostle Paul said, "For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I kept the faith." Saul could not say the same thing at the end of his life, which was at the end of a suicidal sword. He did not end well. He did not finish the race. He did not, you know, he may have, he may have fought the good fight when he was on the battlefield, but he lost the good fight because he ended up jumping on his own sword. Uh, that's not winning. You know, that, that, that's, that's losing. Um, in 1 Samuel, picking up where we were, 15, uh, or sorry, no, in 1 Samuel 15 verse 10 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, this is after Saul's fall. He says, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And this is very, very scary because, you know, God instituted him based upon, you know, what was, you know, what was, you know, ordained and even all the failures from Saul's life, it was God who brought him in uh, to the picture, but ultimately it was to set up the kingdom for David. You know, the, the spirit that says left Saul, he was given a demonic spirit, and it says the Saul or the spirit of God began to uh, be used mightily in the life of David. So we see a difference. We almost see like a failure in Saul. If you study the life of Saul, you'll see that his failure invited uh, King David into his life to help him with his demons, right? To the point where David himself, after being anointed by Samuel, stands up to Goliath and wins this victory and as it's his path to victory into his kingdom, which is a beautiful thing. But it was through, it's through Saul's failure that David became king. And it's really a beautiful, sad, but beautiful picture of what God can do. It says here in um, verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, it says, The Lord said, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, infant, and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And it said, Saul and, Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless they, that they utterly destroyed. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering of oxen which I hear? Because it's here, Saul says, 
He says here in response to Samuel, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. You see here, it's, 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 the, it's this idea that somehow Saul was making excuses for himself, justifying the fact and even falsely believing in his own mind that he was being obedient to the Lord, but in reality, he was being completely rebellious. And this is a good warning for us because many of us have can take our lives and we have sin that we have allowed into our lives and it's become normal. But yet we think in our minds, we've trained our minds and our hearts to believe we're obeying God, but ultimately we're only partially obeying him, which God sees as full rebellion. And that's a very difficult place to be because you say, well, God, I'm obeying you. I'm obeying you. Look at me. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I have Christian friends. Yeah, but you're, have you looked at the history on your computer lately? <laughs> I mean, something is not working here. So much so, uh, when Saul tried to make excuses, Samuel said to Saul, shut up. Be quiet, he says, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Goodness, can you imagine that? I'm going to tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Shut your mouth. Stop justifying yourself. Stop making excuses. Stop acting like you're obeying me. When you're not, close it. Because I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me last night. And then Saul's like, speak on, go ahead, you know. Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, But I've obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agod, king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Malachites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, As the Lord, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the Lord. He said, is the Lord so consumed with your diligence and your, and your checking off the boxes when your heart's not in the right place? Do you think the Lord really cares about your church service and your Bible reading and your prayer and your memorization when your, your own life doesn't even comply with everything that you do? Amen. You do everything right. You do all the little things you're supposed to do, all the exercises, but you're corrupt. You're disobedient. You're in rebellion. Have you seen your house lately? Have you seen the things that go on in your own home? But you're obeying every little jot and tittle, and you think you're good, you think you're obedient, but you're, you're not. It's, a, it's an eye-opening experience. I, I don't know where Saul was with the, the things that he did, but we're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of partial obedience. We all are. And this is why it's so grateful that Jesus obeyed in our place perfectly. Amen. Because, listen, if you want to go by that standard, I'm done. Okay, you want to go by that standard, I could be called to be finished as well. 
finishes even following the Lord because it is not in my own strength. It's in the obedience of another. We get all of Christ's obedience granted to us. And I don't want to keep us too long here, but Jesus said, I'm sorry, but the word of God says, and Samuel is dealing with Saul, he said, for, the, for, the rebe- for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We know what happens to witches, right, in the Bible. They are to be stoned, they are to be killed. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So remember this, rebellion in your own life, God sees it as witchcraft, okay? And number two, your stubbornness, that you say is just because I'm Irish or just because I'm this or I'm Italian or I'm this or I'm German or whatever, you're not, you're not given a DNA of stubbornness. I mean, yes, we are, our sinful nature. But the reality is, is that there's no justification for this kind of behavior. And stubbornness is idolatry. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And it's also how Saul got rejected as being king, ended his career. He was done. Even though Saul tried to reach out and say, God, you'd say to Samuel, please forgive me, let me move on. God says, you know, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then as strange as it was to see Saul prophesying at the beginning of his reign, we see him doing it again at the end of his reign. We see this whole thing happen all over again at the end of his reign. It says, 1 Samuel 19, 24 says, Thus it is said, is Saul among the prophets? We just heard that in the beginning as we started. Now we hear it again after he's already fallen. I mean, think about that. He's already crashed. He's out doing it again. But this time when he was doing this, he was chasing down David to kill him. Murder King David. Right? And then he's out prophesying. Um... But the messengers came upon Saul in his school of prophets, and Saul had repeated this three times. In every instance, it happened again. So Saul went, and he too was overtaken by the Spirit of God and began to prophesy. Many, says St. Augustine, are the gifts of God which are possessed by evil men. Evil men often have great talents and great skill and great wealth. The gift of prophecy is a great gift, but it was possessed by Saul, Saul, an evil king prophesied at the very time he was persecuting holy David. Let not therefore men boast as if they have God's gifts. Those gifts will profit them nothing without charity. But let them think of the fearful account they must one day give to God if they use not the holy things in a holy way. Clearly teach us that evil men can say the right things yet still be in rebellion against God. Let us remember this. People can do everything right. You can have preachers you love or people that just sound really good. They get up there, they're flashy. They seem to bear a personality-driven cult. They say everything right, but there's a couple of elements there that they're missing. Or even if they say everything right, they could be totally foreign to the salvation of God. Even Richard Baxter talks about this in The Reformed Pastor. There'll be many of those uh, men who stand behind the pulpits that call others to repentance and come into the kingdom where they have never repented and they've never tasted the kingdom themselves. Remember that. Don't trust everybody just because of the words that come out of their mouth. There has to be stability also in the life of the saint. They must bear fruit as well. Deuteronomy talks about this. I'm going to end with this really quick. But he talks about prophets actually their prophecy coming true. They'll tell you something, and even if it does come true, 
Okay, these guys are not of God. They're false prophets. How in the world were they able to prophesy something that come to pass? And the, and the Lord's saying, there's something very deceptive about this because they can't say what's going to happen. They can't say what's true. They can't. You don't trust them for that because it'll lead you astray to worship idols. And therefore, God commanded that they be killed. Why? Because they drew people away from him to themselves. And he's just saying there's people that can actually do this. You know, prof, these prophets will come across with something. And we always say, well, that prophet, that prophecy didn't come to pass. We're going to stone you. You're a false prophet, right? We use that. But some of these things did come to pass. Does that mean they're true? You can't just go on the element because it didn't come to pass. They're false. Even if they say something that did come to pass, they can still be false. They asked in, in the verse 12, then a man from answered and said, um, but who is their father? Therefore became a proverb, is Saul among the prophets. Meaning that the prophecy comes not by secession, we all know that, but is given to whom God pleases. Nothing by him, because he was from a low degree. He come from a low place. He didn't practice with Samuel's prophets. He wasn't out there on the playing field in his school and then comes out the doors and starts prophesying on the hill. Prophesying on the hill. God automatically inferred that on him himself. So it's saying, boy, what in the world's going on here? A man of such low and mean stature, now he's prophesying? How did this come to pass? Who's his father? Was, he, was, it, was it Samuel? Was it, was it you know, something else? That, how was he taught? He was taught by God. And this is what happened when he came on to the field. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I begotten you through the gospel. In the last verse, which is verse uh, 13, it says, And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. He came to the high place after this powerful transforming event in Saul's life. He returned at once to the high place where it all started at Gebeah where he had met the sons of the prophet on the hillside. After this event, he felt a desire for solitary communing in the quiet and holy sanctuary with God who had come so near to him. I'm going to finish with this, I promise, is that when God comes near to you and the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will inevitably want to be with God to where that powerful transformation took place in your life. You became born again. It'll be so powerful and so transformational. You'll want to be in the sanctuary of God. It's inevitable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, just pray, Father, that it didn't fall on deaf ears. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would all um, do well this morning to recognize this reality that, God, when your spirit does come upon us, there will be a radical change in our lives, a radical change in our affections, our desires, and our love, Lord, in our, in our um, fight against sin, Lord, in our submission and surrender to Christ. Say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.